morning, everyone. It is. I'm saying, sorry. <laughs> what day is it? Life comes at you fast. Uh, it's Friday. Friday. It's Are you Friday. happy about that? I'm or happy. Something? Oh, I'm something, going something. on vacation for a week, so I'm, I'm okay with it. Sorry. See you in a week. <laughs> Good morning. You're going. Caitlin's gone. Yeah. She'll be back Monday. Yeah. Uh, welcome to CNN This Morning. We're glad you're with us on this Friday. Caitlin is off. Let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, March 24th. Overnight, <clears throat> significant breaking news. The U.S. launching strikes in Syria after an American contractor was killed in a drone attack. There are five other U.S. service members wounded. The Pentagon suspects it was an Iranian-affiliated drone. We'll get to that developing news soon. A top attorney, though, for Donald Trump set to testify today before a grand jury in the classified documents investigation. The New York Times reports that Evan Corcoran is not intending to plead the fifth. Utah banning kids under 18 from using social media unless they get their parents' permission. It is the first state to enact this type of law. Also today, the United States and Canada announcing a deal to turn away asylum seekers at their border. President Biden set to address it during his trip to Ottawa. And look at this. Kansas State, FAU, Gonzaga, and Yukon all advancing in the Men's March Madness Tournament. The rest of the Elite Eight gets decided tonight. But you know what, right now? CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin with this really, really serious yeah. news breaking overnight. It is a U.S. military strike striking back after a drone attack killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members in Syria. The Pentagon says an Iranian-made drone hit a base in northeastern Syria. President Biden responded with airstrikes. This video appears to show the flaming aftermath. U.S. officials say the precision strikes targeted groups in Syria affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. These are ambulances racing to the scene. You can see what appears to be a burning building off to the side of the road. We have to remember the United States still has about 900 troops on the ground in Syria helping the, in the fight against ISIS. Just yesterday, their commander testified to Congress just before this about how Iran has been using proxy militias to attack American soldiers with drones and rockets. And our national security reporter, Natasha Natasha Bertrand joins us now at the Pentagon. Natasha, exactly what he was warning about in that congressional testimony appears to be what happened. That's exactly right, Poppy. Look, U.S. officials had been anticipating something like this because the Iranians have, they've seen an uptick in the number of Iranian attacks against coalition forces in Syria. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said that he took this action, he, he authorized this action, this strike against this Iranian target at the direction of President Biden in an effort to protect American personnel. President Joe Biden ordering a U.S. airstrike in eastern Syria Thursday after U.S. intelligence assessed that an Iranian-origin drone killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members and another U.S. contractor. Biden authorized the strike, quote, against facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement. The Department of Defense said it, quote, took proportionate and deliberate action intended to limit the risk of escalation and minimize casualties. The U.S. military maintains approximately 900 U.S. troops in Syria, some of which are there as part of a coalition to defeat ISIS. But those forces are often under attack by Iranian proxies. Iran's vast 
and deeply resourced proxy forces spread instability throughout the region and threaten our regional partners. The commander of U.S. Central Command said in a statement following the strike, quote, we are postured for scalable options in the face of any additional Iranian attacks. Testifying on Capitol Hill Thursday, Carilla said that Iranian proxies have carried out attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East 78 times since the beginning of 2021. So what Iran does to hide its hand is they use Iranian proxies. That's, uh, that's either UAVs or, or rockets to be able to attack our forces in either Iraq or Syria. Are, are these considered acts of war by Iran? They are being done by the Iranian proxies is what I would tell you, Congressman. The Biden administration has carried out multiple airstrikes against militias affiliated with Iran following previous attacks on U.S. facilities in the region. Biden's first known military action was a strike in February 2021 after rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq. So this is not the first time, again, that President Biden has ordered these airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria. But it is uh, the first time in a while, anyway, that we have seen an American killed. And that is why, really, the U.S. responded in the way that it did. Not only was an American killed, but five U.S. service members, as well as another U.S. contractor, were injured. Natasha, last Thursday, the head of Central Command warned Congress about Iran's arsenal of drones and missiles. What exactly are, are they capable of? Yeah, so Commander Carilla, he did caution Congress, saying that the Iran really possesses right now the largest and my most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East. And of course, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have only risen in recent months as Iran has gotten closer to Russia and that military defense partnership has grown. Here's what Carilla told Congress last week. Today, Iran is exponentially more capable than they were just five years ago. Today, Iran possesses the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East, thousands of ballistic and cruise missiles, many capable of striking anywhere in the Middle East. Iran also maintains the largest and most capable UAV force in the region. So as long as Iran keeps attacking U.S. military personnel in Syria, expect to see the Biden administration taking what it calls proportional responses. Don. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you very much. And straight ahead, I need to tell you that the White House's John Kirby is going to fill us in on the latest developments. Meantime, lawmakers on Capitol Hill just grilled the CEO of TikTok yesterday. TikTok surveils us all. And the Chinese Communist Party is able to use this as a tool to manipulate America as a whole. Your platform should be banned. I expect today you'll say anything to avoid this outcome. That was Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, the CEO of TikTok. Shuzi Chu testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee for hours yesterday, tried to ease those concerns from lawmakers in both parties over the company's ties to China. He stressed their ongoing efforts to protect user data. ByteDance is not owned or controlled by the Chinese government. There are more than 150 million Americans who love our platform, and we know we have a responsibility to protect them. The bottom line is this. American data stored on American soil by an American company overseen by American personnel. We call this initiative Project Texas. But his defense largely fell on deaf ears. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I, have I, asked find that that, I find that actually preposterous. I don't believe that it is technically possible to accomplish what TikTok says it will accomplish through Project Texas. 
So let's bring in CNN media analyst and Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Sarah, oh my gosh, what a hearing. Um, but, but walk us through what we need to know. Despite the fireworks, it just seems like he couldn't convince anyone that the billions that TikTok has spent on trying to store the data here uh, makes it any safer. Yeah, well, the biggest problem, Poppy, is that this is a bipartisan onslaught against him. Typically, when we have these big tech hearings, you have Republicans saying censorship. You have Democrats talking about misinformation. But this time, he couldn't win. He couldn't curry favor with either side. Now, the biggest concern that lawmakers had was that TikTok poses a national security threat because the data from U.S. users could be potentially accessed by the Chinese government due to their laws there. He tried to push back by saying that we've been working with the government, with the Committee on Foreign U.S. Investment. Uh, to try to make sure that that's not going to happen. But the problem is no one believed him. And so what you witnessed yesterday was a complete trust fall. Mm -hmm. uh, TikTok has, though, um, Sarah, been taking some action, at least trying to protect user data. They say like that this Project Texas, uh, that's here in the United States. Similarly, Project Clover in the EU. Do you think lawmakers are buying that or no? No, 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 Don. I, I was talking to a lot of sources on Capitol Hill, and they're saying Project Texas is not going to be enough to allay our concerns. They support the White House in saying that if TikTok's owners do not sell their stake, that the app should be banned. Now, what Project Texas is, is it's named after the state where Oracle, a U.S. software company, <coughs> is based. TikTok is working with Oracle to secure U.S. data to make sure that it's stored on servers here, and also giving Oracle oversight into its algorithms and content moderation to ensure that there's no sort of meddling in what people in America see. But it became very obvious to me and others, Don, that that is not going to be enough to allay the concerns of lawmakers on Capitol Hill. But play this out for us. It's easy to have a headline, you know, saying we should ban you, etc. But play it out. The courts would likely decide this, not the influencers, not the politicians, as you write in your great piece this morning. And by the way, if they try to force a sale, China can block it. Correct. So let's play this out, Poppy. Let's say Congress passes something to empower the White House to block or to ban TikTok. Well, likely TikTok is going to counter sue and it's going to go to a court. And we saw that play out, by the way, two years ago when the Trump administration tried to ban TikTok through an executive order. The courts blocked it. Another scenario would be, let's say that it gets banned here in the United States and that instead TikTok says, you know what, we want to avert that. Let's try to sell to a U.S. company. Well, China has already indicated that they don't want to allow TikTok to sell. Why? Because they've passed their own laws that would protect their tech from being exported. So ByteDance is caught between a rock and a hard spot. You know, they want to sell so that they could stay in the U.S., but at the same time, they're, you know, TikTok's... Uh, Chinese connection is going to make it very hard for them to sell. If I had to guess how this plays out, Poppy, I think we're mm -hmm. just going to be in limbo for a long, long time. But one thing I'm watching, I've asked folks on Capitol Hill, would you be comfortable with TikTok IPOing on the U.S. market? That way it's not having to look for a big sale partner when it's worth, what, $50 billion? Like, who's going to be able to afford that besides maybe Oracle with a financing partner? And it doesn't seem like that's going to allay their concerns either. Mm. I, I hate to put you on the spot here because you answered partially what I was going to ask because the Biden administration does want a sale. So if you you say this is going to play out for a long, long time, do you have any idea like what is next when it comes to because users are like, am I going to have this platform? Am I, am I not? What's going on? It's going to be on your phone. Don't worry about it. I think what comes next is if we get to a, I think TikTok's going to try to work out a sale deal. They're going to get pressure back from China. If there is a threat to ban, I think that TikTok will ask for sort of a, 
you know, immediate injunction to stop a court from banning it while they work it out in court. And I think it would be tough for a court overall to approve a ban. So I think for now, users can breathe easy, but we'll see this where this goes. All right. Sarah, thank you. Sarah, now, and then we're going to talk to Abby Phillip, who did a special oh, last, night. last night on the network, and we'll see what she has to say. Thank you, Sarah. Appreciate it. We're going to turn now to new developments in the investigations, plural, into Donald Trump. Starting with the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, the ex-president's main defense lawyer is scheduled to testify today before a federal grand jury without attorney-client privilege. Prosecutors will ask about his communications with Trump ahead of the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago last summer. Now, he's also ordered to turn over his notes from that time. Edmund Corcoran's appearance is a potential make-or-break moment for the special counsel's investigation into the handling of those classified documents and possible obstruction of justice when the federal government tried to get those documents back. Okay, so that's one, as Don said, plural, investigations. That's the classified documents case. We're also very cl closely tracking developments in that hush money investigation here in New York. The district attorney's office is firing back this morning at House Republicans who sent a letter to the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg demanding information about testimony in this ongoing case, which could end in criminal charges against former President Trump. Bragg's office called those requests unlawful, saying the information was confidential under state law. Now, the grand jury in that case did meet yesterday, but not on that case at all. There is a lot that is confusing here. CNN senior legal affairs correspondent uh, Paula Reed joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Where uh, are we? Yeah. Uh, so we're really seeing pressure building on the district attorney here in Manhattan and on former President Trump. Let's start in Manhattan. Everyone asking me, what's going to happen? Will they indict him? Won't they? We don't know. All we know at this point is that the grand jury will be back on Monday to hear more evidence in the Trump case. They could at that time hear from a witness. And we know from our reporting that they're considering whether they need to bring another witness back in to rebut the testimony that they heard on Monday from Rob Costello. And I talked to Costello yesterday and yeah. I asked him, what happened in that grand jury room? What what did you do? And he, he described his testimony. He said, look, this was contentious at times. And one of the reasons it was contentious is because he handed over hundreds of documents related to his one-time representation of Cohen. But he says he was only asked about six of them. And he and the prosecutor sparred at times about that. And at one point, he turned to the grand jury and said, hey, guys, you need to get your hands on all of these documents. And he tells me that five or six of the jurors nodded in agreement. Now, he has not heard from the district attorney's office since uh, that appearance. And I asked him, well, who could they potentially bring in to rebut your testimony? And he said, there's nobody. It's impossible. But he also notes that Michael Cohen would not be the right person to come in and rebut this testimony. That's Manhattan, right? Wait and wow. see what happens Can I ask Monday. you something yeah, with Manhattan before you get to the other thing? Yeah. Could the... We, meaning as journalists right, who are yeah. covering this, could we be focusing in on the wrong thing? Could this be about inflating his, you know, the, his assets or whatever and then, you know, uh, downplaying it when, when it comes to taxes? Could it be about something else other well, than the, thi the thing? So it's a great question. I always say we can't assess the strength of this case because we don't know all yeah. the evidence, right? We put together pieces of reporting based on what witnesses who have gone before the grand jury have told us and our, our sources across this investigation. It's certainly possible. Once you start turning over rocks, you never know what you'll right. uncover, right? They have looked into this issue um, of potential bank fraud or tax fraud. And he ha the former president has not been charged, though his organization and one of the executives uh, were charged in that. So we'll see. And it's not even clear that they're going to move forward mm -hmm. with a vote on an indictment. We know right now they're regrouping. They're trying to assess how they're going to move forwards. Yeah. It's, a, it's a great point, because yeah. that was that was what they were looking at the first time around under 
Cy Vance. Yeah. And, and they then, sort of walked away from it. Yeah, but Her we job. don't but yeah. we don't right. know what's happening behind right. closed doors, yeah. right? So now the other thing. Let's get to uh, the, these classified documents. Like, yes. There are many things. Let's get to these classified documents because uh, you have the corporate, the Corcoran uh, testimony. It's expected today. And then we learn that another one of his attorneys, Timothy uh, Palatore, right? Palatore, yeah. Palatore testified yesterday to the grand jury that, uh, three months ago. So what does that mean? How significant is that? Yeah, so this is interesting because Tim oversaw the additional searches. So after the search warrant was executed at Mar-a-Lago back in August, they searched additional locations. They did another search of Mar-a-Lago. They searched his Bedminster property, an office, a storage space. Tim was the one running that show. So we've learned that he, he went before the grand jury he had to testify about how did you choose the locations, who searched them, because they did hire investigators to help with that search. He was also, we've learned, pressed on whether there was a shell game. Were you moving things from Mar-a-Lago to a storage space? And he also had to hand over reports that he had compiled about these searches. And I actually did an exclusive interview with Tim about a month ago. I think it's his only TV interview. Let's take a listen to how he described the interactions with DOJ. We conducted a search back in December, which is where we found uh, these documents, and we turned them over immediately. These were not turned over last week, although you know the DOJ leaked it last week. This was turned over back in December. And so we have gone through, we've tried to work with the DOJ, we've tried to do searches of all the relevant places, and any time we found anything, we've immediately turned it over. So the searches that we know about uh, concluded in December. That's when he also did his testimony. That interview was in February. But he has insisted that there was no shell game, that this was just the product of a very disorganized exit from the White House. Right. You're going to be busy. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you get somewhat of a weekend. Paula Reed, thank you very much. Thank you, Paula. Appreciate it. The retirement revolt continues in France. Protests at airports, a town hall, schools, and oil refineries. Wow. Live in Paris for you next. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Well, in a potentially precedent-setting case, a Michigan appeals court has ruled a high school shooter, school shooter's parents should stand trial for involuntary manslaughter. A three-judge panel ruled that James and Jennifer Crumbly ignored their son Ethan's mental health issues and other warning signs and provided him with the gun that he used in the school shootings. Ethan killed four students at his high school in 2021. CNN's Jean Casares joins us now. This is enormous because it is about not the teen's actions. It's about what the parents didn't do. And it's truly precedent setting because what the court is saying, the appellate court is saying, you, the parents, you can be tried for homicide because one of the elements is that you, the parents, are the ones that caused that mass shooting. Your son has already pleaded guilty, but a jury can determine that you caused the mass shooting. And it all depends on foreseeability. And the judges go into that into, in their uh, opinion, saying that it was foreseeable that this would happen. Of course, it will be up to a jury in the end, but they based it on the facts. We want to show everybody some of the facts that the judges relied upon. Ethan, Ch Ethan Crumbly had had mental issues and he knew it. And he was sending texts to his mother about that. It's just paranoia. She didn't respond. So the justices quote, about a one week later, Ethan Crumbly sent additional text messages to Jennifer, his mother, this time reflecting his belief that a demon was in the house, that it was throwing objects inside the house. Mm. He then says, can you at least text back? And she didn't. 
She didn't respond to him. And then the court went on to say, uh, talking about the journal, because Ethan Crumbly had a journal. Now, the parents did not know about the journal, which could be important for the defense, right? But it's coming into the trial, and the justices wrote, every one of the 21 pages of written material had reference to plans to commit a school shooting. Ethan Crumbly wrote, I will cause the biggest school shooting in Michigan's history, and I will kill everyone I see. The first victim has to be a pretty girl with a future so she can suffer like me. Oh, my gosh. But they didn't know about, the parents didn't know about the journal? They didn't know about it. They knew about his mental health issues. They did know it. And then they got him an early Christmas present. Oh, boy. that was a gun. gun. And several weeks later, this happened. I wonder what this does for, you know, parents around the country. It's precedent setting because I listened to the appellate arguments and one of the justices asked the prosecutor, have you found any other case in this country that is like this one? And the prosecutor said, no, Your Honor, I have not. And the justice, the appellate court knew the decision they had to make would be precedent setting. I could tell it as I watched those arguments, but they decided that this case was warranted. And they said that normally this wouldn't be warranted, but there were just such a commingling of the facts Mm -hmm. that they had to believe that this should proceed to trial. Wow. Hugely significant. Gene, thank you. Every parent with kids, underage kids at home should be watching this. Yes, right. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate it. Gwyneth Paltrow set to take the stand today in a Utah lawsuit alleging that she injured a man on a ski slope back in 2016. Retired Dr. Terry Sanderson is suing the actress for $300,000, accusing her of recklessly crashing into him, breaking his ribs and causing a brain injury before skiing away. He said that she skied away, right? The doctor who treated Sanderson testified earlier this week. Watch. After his accident, he deteriorated abruptly and many of the activities that he used to do he stopped doing so Gwyneth Paltrow is claiming that Sanderson was actually the one who crashed into her and she filed a lawsuit of her own against him suing him for one dollar there's been an alarming increase in colorectal cancer among young adults scientists are racing to try to figure out why earlier this month the American Cancer Society revealed about 20% of all new colorectal cancer diagnoses are in people younger than 55. CNN Health reporter Jacqueline Howard is with us. I was just thinking about this in the age, I think it's 50, right, when you're supposed to get colonoscopies. Why is this happening in younger people? That's right. And it remains a mystery, Poppy, as to why we're seeing more cases among younger people. But when you think about it, anecdotally, it's no longer rare to hear of someone in their 30s or 40s being diagnosed with advanced colorectal cancer. But yet scientists and oncologists I've talked to say that there's no uh, genetic or hereditary increase in risk factors or cause. They say that some people they've diagnosed at a young age were fit and otherwise healthy. So why are we seeing this increase in cases among younger ages? And I asked Dr. William Day-Hutt, he's the chief scientific officer at the American Cancer Society, here's what he had to say. It's hard to know exactly what it is, although in general, based on sort of the, the time interval, which is not that long, it's probably something external to the patient. Some broadly described, you know, um, change in the environment, you know, change in diet, change in behavioral aspects. 
So we heard there, Poppy, the investigation is looking into changes in the environment, external factors, diet, and the American Cancer Society is calling for more research into what could be driving this increase, and they're calling for more research into new treatments as well, Poppy. Hmm, interesting. So uh, I'm wondering, Poppy and I were discussing as you were talking. We were, we were listening. After we said you look gorgeous in that pink. <laughs> Sorry, just had to say it. But we were discussing They're recommending this. earlier, because I think people are getting colonoscopies earlier now. Is that going, you think that's going to become the recommendation instead of 50 that folks are going to get it earlier? I definitely think so. And, you know, it's already recommended that if you have a family history or any other risk factors to start screening as early as 40, some people age 45. But I do think that as we see these more cases, that we will see a shift in what's recommended. And as you see here, the proportion of cases among people younger than 55 has doubled in the past few years from 1995, 11% to 20% in 2019. So this is a growing concern, Don and Poppy. And I'm sure we'll see shifts in recommendations mm. as well. That is really scary. Yeah. Go yeah. for screenings early. Jacqueline Howard, thank you. Yes. Thanks, Jacqueline. Utah, the first state to try limiting how children can use social media, what parents will now be required to do. Straight ahead, also this. Jerome Tang sets it up, going for the line. Did Kansas State pull off a crazy fake argument trick play, or was the team just lucky? You decide ahead. Number 18 from Noel. None bigger. Listen up here. Utah cracking down on how kids use, can use social media. The governor has signed laws that ban anyone under the age of 18 from using social media unless their parents give them permission. Now, the laws also require that parents have access to their children's posts, messages, and responses, and they impose a curfew on minors' accounts from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. Interesting. So supporters say that the measures will protect children from dangerous and addictive content. Social media companies are expected to file legal challenges, of course. And, of course, this comes as lawmakers ripped into TikTok CEO yesterday on Capitol Hill. The hearing focused on national security fears, but concerns about the app's impact on kids' mental health also came up. So let's bring in now CNN correspondent and host of the podcast, The Assignment with Adi Cornish. Of course, Adi Cornish joins us. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, Utah is the first to enact this type of, these types of law, laws. The impact, do you think, in the, in the, of these restrictions? I would think of it as part of a broader movement at first. I think even on this program, we were talking about an effort to ban TikTok off government devices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and now we're talking about a state passing something to apply to regular citizens. Mm -hmm. um, I would note that there's not clear what the enforcement mechanism is for that or the monitoring or policing. So it's not clear what that means. So it's really more about sending a message. And this comes alongside several social media lawsuits filed by school systems in Seattle and California who say that uh, social media companies are harming the health of teens. Um, and this all dovetails into the kind of Republican-led interest in cracking down on China. And that is how TikTok ended up at the center of the public eye yesterday. You said broader. You think it's going to mean meaning more and more to come. I mean, there's a big definitely between the lawsuits. So there's lawsuits on the state and local level. The Supreme Court is hearing a case called Google v. Gonzalez, which approaches Section 230, which is the part of the federal law that allows these companies to flourish without dealing with liability by their users' content. And on top of that, you have a legislative 
prong that's happening as well, right? You have these federal proposals uh, in Congress and, as you're pointing out, the Utah law. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an interesting moment after the pandemic when everybody was home. We we're all using, you know, materials online and like our whole lives are online. And now here we are kind of out of that phase. Quarantines are over and people are really scrutinizing the impact that social media has had, especially on young mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting because Utah did this, but then it's being considered in um, Arkansas, Texas, Ohio, and Louisiana. Yeah. I had this, I want to ask you as a, as a mom, because you're a mom, how old are your kids? Yeah, um, under five, yeah. both of them. Okay. So, so just the terror We're damages. right in the, like, yeah. <laughs> they don't know what TikTok is yet, my yeah. kids. But they know how to use a phone and they well, know how the to thing. swipe. And yeah, I, I walked into their room the other day when I demanded they nap and they were both had stolen these little Amazon iPad things and were on it. And I just had this flash of like, oh, my gosh, when you're teenagers, this is going to be a fight about you on social media, which I'm terrified about the impact. So can you just speak to this moment for parents and states intervening here to protect? protect our children? I just think well, it's fascinating. Well, I think actually for parents and legislators, they're having a very loud voice right now, right? They're voicing their concerns and those concerns are being heard when you look at how lawmakers um, were speaking to the CEO of TikTok. They were very upset. Um, you know, I'm currently doing some reporting where I'm speaking to an attorney who represents 1,700 clients that are parents whose kids were um, harmed Uh, or worse, they believe, by their use of social media. So that movement is kind of going forward. And the goal is to put pressure, I think, on the social media companies. You talk, there is already a law that says you're There's already rules from the social media companies that say you're not supposed to be using this app under a certain age. Kids plug in any age they want because there's no age verification. So these kinds of laws are designed to pressure the companies into putting in place provisions that they could have had all this time, such as age verification. Am I wrong in this? I was was just talking to Gene Casares. I mean, that's to the extreme about the parents, you know, knowing about the mental health of their kids. But is this a moment of accountability for parents? For parents. parents. Yeah, you know, I I would think of it a little differently. Um, You know, it's one thing to try and police bullying at your school where there's one bully in the hallway pushing you up against a locker. Mm -hmm. It's another thing where through your phone, hundreds of bullies might be speaking to your kid at any given time. And an algorithm might be serving up other kinds of um, predatory figures right? Uh, As people you may know, as recommend to watch this video. So the incoming from it is pretty intense. And I don't think parents are as equipped as the social media companies Mm -hmm. to deal with it. It's an uneven battle right now. And I think what we're watching culturally is that battle start to even out. I would just... Go ahead. No, it's just crazy how social media, like we still have not caught up to social media with the laws. The laws certainly haven't. Um, Audie, stay with us. I will just note that it's a a real privacy concern here in terms of the tech side of this, their view is this is unconstitutional to do things like this because of infringement of privacy and First Amendment rights. So the courts will have a big say. Stay with us. We have a lot ahead because, as you've always said, saying we don't have the tools to measure the economy after COVID. It's confusing. confusing. It's weird. Audie's all over it. We're going to talk about inflation, bank fears, uncertainty, all ahead. Yeah. And incredible video showing a border patrol agent rescuing a child abandoned by a smuggler. We're going to show you what happened. That's next. Uh.
All right, yikes, look at the market. Stock futures down sharply this morning over renewed concerns about the banks, particularly in Europe where shares of Deutsche Bank slid more than 13% this morning. The recent banking turmoil continued battle on inflation, leaving everyone from Wall Street to Main Street to this table wondering what the heck is going on with this economy. Audie Cornish is back with us, host of the Assignment Podcast. The newest episode, I love it. Yes, this economy is confusing. She agrees with me. How long have I been saying? I hate to say it. I can imagine also for a news anchor, the narrative whiplash, right? Because you're getting these stories and trying to describe what's going on. But Audie, I have been saying, and I think about, look, and I don't think it's anything novel, unique, right? I'm some brainiac for saying it, that especially after COVID, that the metrics or whatever, that we, whatever metrics we use to measure the economy, it's all off and screwy and wacky, and we really don't know how at this point. I think this is a fantastic Yeah, I mean, I would, I would think of it this way. And, and um, in the course of our reporting, I was reading a speech from one of the Fed governors who said, look, usually history is a model, mm-hmm. but there are real limitations to looking back for this particular situation. Um, And the economists we spoke to said, yes, it's sort of interesting because the pandemic quarantines, they aren't your typical disaster, right? After a natural disaster, maybe the government comes in, there's a surge of money, it's sort of a finite recovery period. Um, But with this, you had these quarantines that sort of shut down large parts of the economy. But more importantly, it shaped the economy in ways that we didn't anticipate, some we overestimated. You can see that happening in Silicon Valley, which is why they're having layoffs. They thought that we need more of their services than we actually now do. Mm. Now they've got a right size or drop back. And meanwhile, inflation is high because of our own spending, our own demand. Mm. Um, can we, I want to listen to a little bit of your pod on this because the Fed didn't forecast that the bank Collapse, that we would see these bank collapses, right? It yeah. took everyone largely by surprise. Can you play a little bit? Let's listen to a little bit and get your thoughts yeah, from the sure. podcast on this, Fed predictions. I often tell my students, you know, think about trying to steer an ocean liner, right? If you wait until you get to the dock and then think about hitting the brakes, well, you're way too late. You should have been thinking about that two miles out and slowing down then. That's the the lever that the Fed has in that they're not thinking about contemporaneous changes. They're thinking about, I'm going to make decisions today that are going to impact the economy at some point in the future. And I have to hold everything else constant. It's a tricky note at the end, everything else constant, meaning the Fed has this major lever to pull interest rates. They can put interest rates kind of up so that everyone can slow down their spending, maybe slow down their hiring, which, by the way, businesses have not been doing, which is another befuddling uh, Mm -hmm. piece of data. Um, But they can also bring interest rates down, right, so that we all can spend a little bit more, which they don't want. Um, The problem is the unknown unknowns, right? So uh, a bank collapse, some other kind of jitters, the debt ceiling fight, These are the kinds of things that start to muddy the water as they try and forecast and make a decision about interest rates. And in the meantime, inflation inequality means that some of us are feeling these high prices more than other people. And it really squeezes people, especially in the middle class. Right on. Great. I can't wait. I haven't listened, but I can't wait to. Yeah, listen to economists say they're wrong. It's, it's always nice to hear people admit <laughs> they're wrong for in them, public. For yeah, exactly. But he was right. Yeah. He's been saying this for months. You got but, it. <laughs> this one's for Don. And I'm, listen, I'm not, not just that, but we all live through 
right, the pandemic. So we're all feeling like, wait, what is it? We don't even know, even he mental health-wise. Totally, totally. The, the full effects of the pandemic. Thank you, Audie. Good yeah, to see you. Thanks for Have having me. Have a great me. weekend. So uh, be sure to listen to the podcast. I will be listening to it on my drive home today, the assignment with Audie Cornish. Make sure you listen to it every Thursday, not just today, Thursday on CNN. <laughs> and we're following the news out of Syria that we have to tell you about. A U.S. contractor killed in a drone attack. The Pentagon retaliating with airstrikes. Stay close with us. This just in, Donald Trump is escalating his rhetoric against Manhattan's District Attorney Alvin Bragg. What he says would possibly happen if he's indicted. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We could all use a little extra help, especially us. <laughs> Falling oh, yeah. asleep at night when counting sheep just isn't enough. How about something to eat? Food companies rolling out new sleep-friendly snacks aimed at cornering uh, that market. Nathaniel Meyerson is here to explain with some cereal that we're going to try <laughs> in a little bit. Oh, I sorry. just think about turkey. <laughs> yeah. Tryptophan. Tryptophan. Uh -huh. Tryptophan. So this is a little bit more expensive than... Uh, turkey or counting sheep, but it's part of this growing trend of big food companies and even soft drink companies making foods that are supposed to, that are designed to help you fall asleep. So this is a new cereal from Post. Now Post is known for Fruity Pebbles, which is not a healthy cereal, but Sweet Dreams, uh, blueberry, it, it comes in blueberry. I tried it last night. Uh, before bed, it was it had a lot of sugar, so it kind of defeated the purpose of. of so I ate too much, and it defeated the purpose. So it didn't work. You're saying did not work. It did not work. Okay. It did not work. Oh, so it's really good though. It tastes really good. <laughs> no, I can't. Remember, I do my fast. I can't eat until oh, like God. noon or this one o'clock. This is why he looks so good. Tell me how sugary it is. Hold on. Yeah, it's good, but. This is what a mom looks at. Well, Papa, yeah. you got to read that in the prompter. I'm kidding, because you're chewing. <laughs> it has There's lavender. There's 16 grams of right. sugar. Right, exactly. It completely defeats the purpose. But there's lavender and chamomile. That's what I was going to say. What is in there that makes it supposed to make it sleep? Lavender, chamomile. Um, it has a little bit of zinc. It's supposed to naturally produce melatonin. We also see Pepsi. They have a, a new drink called Driftwell. That's also yeah. supposed to help you fall asleep. But our very own Wolf has, a, I think Wolf has like a cookie every night before bed or something like that. Does it he helps really? Does, yeah, he does anyone announce know that, that story? No, I think he's fine. I think he said it on the air. But Wolf, I don't know, text me. Um, but I think Wolf has like a cookie or something, a chocolate chip. Well, we'll have to get him sweet night. dreams. Yeah. And so maybe that'll help. I shouldn't eat on air. It's like stuck in my teeth. But it's Thanks. good, right? It's sugary. Sweet dreams. And Thanks then you need Daniel. like way more than one cup of coffee to wake you up after that. That's the issue. <laughs> Thank you, Nathaniel. Appreciate it. CNN This Morning <laughs> continues right now. The Pentagon says that a U.S. contractor was killed in Syria after a drone strike. President Biden responded with airstrikes. This was a proportionate retaliation, that it's designed not to escalate the situation. We do not trust TikTok will ever embrace American values. Your platform should be banned. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us, we have not provided. I find that actually preposterous. Is it a threat to the United States security? Uh, I believe that it is, yes. It should be ended one way or another. The bottom line is this. American data stored on American soil by an American company overseen by American personnel. 
entire country is waiting to see whether Trump is about to be charged and arrested or not. Sources tell us the Manhattan Grand Jury panel met but did not take up the case. District Attorney Alvin Bragg is unleashing on House Republicans. Three committees have said they wanted Bragg to come in and testify. Bragg's office sending the message they want Congress to back off. It's easier for them to go against Alvin Bragg than it is for them to go against Donald Trump. A day after the French president said he wanted an increase in the retirement age by the end of the year, more than a million people turned out in protest. He just stuck to his economic argument that he knows best. And ultimately what we're seeing from the street is that people disagree with that. Wild start to the Sweet 16. Strother for the lead. Bullseye! Zaga survives. They're going to the Elite Eight. So good morning, everyone. Welcome in. It's top of the hour. Let's start with the deadly drone attack on U.S. troops in Syria, shall we? The Pentagon says an Iranian-made drone killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members after it struck a base in northeast Syria. President Joe Biden responding with airstrikes against groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard in Syria. And you can see ambulances rushing to that scene and what looks like a burning building off to the side. The U.S. still has roughly 900 troops on the ground in Syria to help stamp out ISIS. Just yesterday, their commander testifying to Congress about how Iran is using proxy militias to attack American soldiers with drones and rockets. So let's go to our national security reporter, Natasha Bertrand. She joins us live at the Pentagon. Natasha, good morning to you. This breaking overnight, the U.S. military says it's ready to respond, not just to this, but to any additional Iranian attacks if, if this continues to escalate. That's right, Poppy. And Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin did issue a statement last night saying that he authorized the strike after President Biden ordered it in response to a series of attacks by these of groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps against U.S. personnel in Syria. This is not the first time that the U.S. has conducted these kinds of strikes, but it is uh, these these kinds of attacks are you know, increasing. And the U.S. says that it's going to respond in a proportional way. President Joe Biden ordering a U.S. airstrike in eastern Syria Thursday after U.S. intelligence assessed that an Iranian-origin drone killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. service members and another U.S. contractor. Biden authorized the strike, quote, against facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said in a statement. The Department of Defense said it, quote, took proportionate and deliberate action intended to limit the risk of escalation and minimize casualties. The U.S. military maintains approximately 900 U.S. troops in Syria, some of which are there as part of a coalition to defeat ISIS. But those forces are often under attack by Iranian proxies. Iran's vast and deeply resourced proxy forces spread instability throughout the region and threaten our regional partners. The commander of U.S. Central Command said in a statement following the strike, quote, we are postured for scalable options in the face of any additional Iranian attacks. Testifying on Capitol Hill Thursday, Corella said that Iranian proxies have carried out attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East 78 times since the beginning of 2021. And so what Iran does to hide its hand is they use Iranian proxies. That's, uh, that's either UAVs or, or rockets to be able to attack our forces in either Iraq or Syria. Are, are these considered acts of war by Iran? They are being done by the Iranian proxies is what I would tell you, Congressman. 
The Biden administration has carried out multiple airstrikes against militias affiliated with Iran following previous attacks on U.S. facilities in the region. Biden's first known military action was a strike in February 2021 after rocket attacks on U.S. troops in Iraq. Now, adding to this concern is yet another thing that Kurilla, the commander of U.S. Central Command, told Congress last week, which is that today Iran possesses the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East with thousands of ballistic and cruise missiles. And we should note that two of those wounded service members uh, from the strike on Thursday were treated on site, but three additional service members and that U.S. contractor were actually medically evacuated to coalition medical facilities in Iraq. Poppy Don really significant overnight. Natasha, thank you very much for that reporting from the Pentagon. Don. Thank you. We're very lucky uh, to have uh, our military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton to walk us through that. Colonel, thank you so much. Listen, so the the first strike happening uh, in the Northeast and then just south of that is where Biden authorized uh, that strike back again. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, Don, good morning. So basically, with the first strike that the Iranians uh, conducted, the Iranian proxies conducted, I should say, uh, what uh, we're looking at here is uh, in the northeastern part of Syria, uh, the U.S. maintains a major presence with uh, Kurdish forces. So this is a vestige of the uh, work that we did against ISIS to destroy that that entity. And uh, of course, there's still elements that exist there. Uh, What happened was the strike occurred on the U.S. facility, and uh, that ended up killing the contractor and wounding uh, the uh, five soldiers and the other contractor. Uh, So with that, uh, you see that the Iranian proxies are working very much in conjunction with Iran. And it's also something to note that uh, when you look at the way in which this happened, uh, you can see this happening right after Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, patched up their relationship. Uh, with China's help. So there's a lot that's going on here, a lot to unpack. But the basic idea is that uh, the U.S. then responded after this strike occurred and uh, the Deir Azur on the map that you have uh, by you, Don, uh, that uh, was where that Iranian group was actually located. So the attack that the U.S. conducted uh, was right there in more or less in the east central part of the country. Are you expecting the U.S. military to respond further? I think this is it for the moment. Uh, but what would happen, you know, if the Iranian proxies decided to move forward uh, with some other attacks, then you can expect that Central Command, the U.S. Central Command, would be responding in kind. So they basically said that they would use proportionate force any time that something like this happened. And this is a response after about 80 attacks uh, that have occurred uh, since uh, the beginning of 2021. As we've been reporting, there's still U.S. personnel there. The U.S. intel says that the strike was carried out by these Iranian proxies that you mentioned in the region. What more do we know about where they are and the threat that they pose to the U.S. military, to the U.S. personnel? Right. So most of these groups are located in the eastern and central parts of Syria. There are some that are located in the western part of the country. Uh, A lot of the fighting that was going on uh, in the Aleppo region, for example, uh, Iranian proxies were involved in that in the Syrian war. Uh, So these uh, elements are really throughout the country of Syria, and they can turn and attack any forces, whether it's uh, Syrian defense forces, uh, democratic forces that are aligned with us, or the Kurds, or uh, some other entity, including the U.S. forces that are there. 
You know, just last Thursday, the top U.S. military general for the Middle East testified before Congress uh, that Iran is significantly more military capable than ever. Let's listen and then I'll get your response. Here it is. Today, Iran is exponentially more capable than they were just five years ago. Today, Iran possesses the largest and most diverse missile arsenal in the Middle East, thousands of ballistic and cruise missiles, many capable of striking anywhere in the Middle East. Iran also maintains the largest and most capable UAV force in the region. So Iranian proxies have carried out attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East 78 times since the beginning of 2021. What are your concerns, Colonel? So what this shows is that there's a real proliferation of arms in the Middle East, and uh, Iran is the main culprit in this case. And what they're doing in order to protect uh, the identity of who's doing this, at least protected initially, uh, is to give a lot of these weapons to proxy forces so that they can use what's called plausible deniability. In other words, they can wash their hands of whatever happened and say it wasn't us, even though it really was them. Uh, so this is very concerning because it really directly impacts American interests anywhere in the Middle East. Uh, it really impacts the ability of the Kurds, for example, to uh, maintain uh, a relative peace in their region. And it uh, puts at risk uh, any type of peace agreement uh, that was reached in uh, the Syrian civil war. So uh, this is something that is very dangerous and could explode at any time. Yeah. That is Cedric Layton, Colonel Cedric Layton. A little bit later on, we're going to have John Kirby. He's going to join us from the White House. Thank you, Colonel. You bet, Don. The United States and Canada have been grappling with a surge of migrants seeking asylum. And we are now learning that both countries have reached a major agreement to help deal with this. President Biden is in Ottawa right now. Our chief White House correspondent, Phil Mattingly, traveling with the president. He's there. Phil, good morning. This is significant, right? Uh, years in the making. And as I understand it, an extension, a broadening of that 2004 agreement known as the third Safe Third Country Agreement. What does it do? Yeah, Poppy, essentially it will expand that 2004 agreement to include uh, one unofficial border crossing specifically. It's known as Roxham Road. It is an area where migrants have been crossing into Quebec from New York uh, at increasing rates over the course of the last several years. And it's caused significant domestic political problems for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And the fact that they were able to reach an agreement on this and what this essentially will do is it will make that unofficial crossing official, giving Canadians the ability to stem the tide of the crossings there. And in exchange, uh, Canada has agreed to create uh, a refugee program for about 15,000 migrants that would come up uh, for the U.S. side of things. And the reason why this is significant is twofold. One, it is a significant domestic political issue here in Canada for the prime minister and his party. Uh, it is also something that U.S. officials did not seem like they were going to head toward just a matter of weeks ago. It has been a major push by Canadian officials in the lead up to this uh, meeting. And it underscores the fact that U.S. officials and President Biden in particular are really trying to set the conditions for a very productive meeting, very quick 27-hour visit uh, to Canada, but one where there are significant issues uh, on the bilateral side of things that they want to try and reach agreements on. Now, the, the agreement itself, while Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, in talking to our colleague Paula Newton, did not confirm it exactly, he did lay the groundwork for it. Take a listen. Canada is always willing to do more. We're a country that has been built like the United States on welcoming people from around the world. We just need to make sure we're doing it in responsible, proper ways to continue to have our citizens positive towards immigration. 
And while it seems a little bit high level, the translation is they needed this deal, they wanted this deal, they have gotten this deal. It'll be announced later today. It's one of a series of thorny bilateral issues that the president and the prime minister will get into. But the relationship itself, guys, very warm, unlike the current place that I'm standing at the moment, uh, and one where the two leaders themselves uh, have a very close relationship as well, which I think we'll see mm -hmm. play out throughout the course of today's events. You saw it in their embrace, right, hugging, uh, hugging each other's wives, etc., when uh, on the arrival. Phil Mattingly, thank you for the translation into English of that very diplomatic answer from Trudeau. See you soon. We want to show you this incredible video capturing the moment a U.S. Border Patrol agent rescues a one-year-old. The child was abandoned at a U.S.-Mexican border by the person the agency describes as a smuggler. The adult leaves the child sitting next to the barrier and immediately returns to the river. A white patrol truck pulls up and an agent puts the child in the vehicle. Now, the Border Patrol chief tweeted this picture of the child safe in the arms of the agent who rescued him. And authorities told CNN the child is from Guatemala and will be placed with Health and Human Services. Sadly, this is not a rare incident. The agency has reported many smugglers abandoning young children in recent years. It is, what do you say? Well, all I was thinking of is now what? For that child and at hhs yeah. I, I just yeah so I, i've read it slowly there because i wanted the video you see the video but i mean it's just um it's sad and i think it just shows you you know the crisis at the border yes. it shows you what um, people are dealing with who are you know on the other side of our border mm -hmm. and um imagine a parent or someone you know a guardian or what have you feeling that they're so desperate that they have to abandon say, a child. You only do that with a small child like that because you're so desperate. And knowing that they're better off on the other side. I hope that child. Yeah. It's all right. Okay. Um, major turn here, but you've probably been watching basketball at night, right? Turning to March Madness, Gonzaga surviving a wild finish against UCLA to advance to the Elite Eight. Andy Scholes joins us with the highlights. So how was it? Oh, man, Poppy Don, what a night and what a game we had in Las Vegas. The second half, it certainly was one wild ride for fans. Gonzaga was down 13 at halftime, but they came all the way back and actually had an eight-point lead over UCLA with a minute to go. But the Bruins would go on a frantic 10-to-1 run, capped off by Amari Bailey hitting a three to give them the lead with 13 seconds left. But then Mark Few dialed up what he calls the Jay Wright play. It's the same one Villanova used to win it all a few years ago. And Julian Strother, the Vegas native, nailing the three there. UCLA would have one last chance, but they turned the ball over. Zags just winning an absolute thriller, 79-76. to 76. Now Kansas State and Michigan State, they also played a thriller at Madison Square Garden. And it was another legendary performance from Wildcats point guard Marquise Noel, the 5'8 Harlem native. Scored 20 points to go along with an NCAA tournament record, 19 assists. And no assist was bigger than one to Keontae Johnson right here in overtime. Johnson going to come up with the reverse slam. And take another look at this. Noel was actually going back and forth with his coach, Jerome Tang, right before throwing that pass. In the closing seconds, Noel also getting a big steal. And uh, he would take it the other way to seal this victory for the Wildcats as Kansas State wins 98-93 to to advance. 
to the Elite Eight. And here's Tang on his point guard after the game. You know, where we was at, it was a place of fire. But we practiced in a place of fire all the time. So he was ready for it. This is a bad boy right here. It's a bad boy. Gotta love the intensity. And Keontae Johnson, he led the Wildcats with 22 points last night, including that big dunk. He continues to be one of the best stories of the tournament. So Johnson, he collapsed in 2020 while playing for Florida and was in a coma for three days. He was diagnosed with heart inflammation. And instead of taking a $5 million insurance payout and never playing basketball again, he transferred to KSU, guys, and now has them a win away from the Final Four. So if your bracket's out, you know, you've got nothing to root for there, it's hard not to root for the Wildcats and, and their two star players. Two great stories. I was getting dressed this morning. I looked at my bracket. I, kinda, I was just like, I just stuffed it in my backpack and didn't really. I was like, I don't know what this thing is. What's going on? Never look is at Prince, it again. Wait, Andy, is Princeton going to make it? To the Elite Eight, well, they play tonight, Prince right? Of, they play tonight against Creighton. They're, surprise, surprise, once again, underdogs. But, hey, one thing we've learned so far from this tournament, you cannot count out these Princeton Tigers. Smarty, smarties. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Andy Scholes. See you soon. So wait until you hear uh, all that we have ahead on this. One of Donald Trump's attorneys will testify today in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents probe, no longer being able to cite attorney-client privilege for some critical questions. What do prosecutors want to ask him? Plus, the former president also facing backlash for, get this, calling the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg a Soros-backed animal, among other things. More on his escalating rhetoric straight ahead. So new developments in the investigations into former President Donald Trump. First, in the DOJ's investigation of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's defense attorney Evan Corcoran is set to testify in front of a federal grand jury today after being denied attorney-client privilege. The special counsel suspects Trump intentionally misled his lawyers about those documents. And Corcoran was also ordered to turn over his notes from that time. Another Trump lawyer, Timothy Palatori, says that he testified back in December before the grand jury for several hours about additional searches for classified documents at Trump properties. He says that there was no obstruction of justice and that his team complied with the subpoena. And new this morning, Donald Trump escalating his rhetoric against Manhattan's district attorney Alvin Bragg over that hush money investigation. In a post overnight, Trump raised the possibility of, quote, death and destruction, close quote, that could happen if he's indicted, with the former president continuing on to write, quote, no crime has been committed. Our senior political correspondent, anchor of Inside Politics on Anchor Anchorver, fascinating special last night on TikTok, which we'll get to in a moment. Abby Phillip is here. Good morning. Good morning. Good, morning. Good to see you. Uh, so I'm great to be here with you guys. Abby, death and destruction, yeah. given the history yeah. and the background of the death and violence on January 6th and the insurrection. Yeah. Why is the president saying this, former president? He doesn't see any downside to upping the ante. And, and why would he? Every time that he's escalated the rhetoric, the response on Capitol Hill from Republicans, even the ones who are typically more measured about Trump, has been to circle the wagons around him. So uh, these things really feed on themselves. When, when Trump sees the reaction to one post, the previous one, uh, 
calling on his supporters to protest. And he sees that the only consequence of that had been that Republicans basically said, we've got to defend Trump. He goes one step further. And I think that's what we're seeing here. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what Alvin Bragg is going to do. But Trump is raising a lot of money off of this kind of rhetoric. And I think that he does not care if he does, in fact, spin up unrest. That's part of the strategy. Well, he raised a whole lot of money by saying, oh, I'm going to be, you know, insinuating that he was going to be indicted on Tuesday, right? Raise money off of that. But this is really disturbing to me because he's been doing this for a while. And I think we can't talk enough about it where he's been calling uh, these prosecutors who happen to be (laughs) African-American, saying that they're racist. He called Alvin Bragg uh, a Soros-backed animal. Yeah. He's turning to his old tricks here of, you know, um, being uh, racist or racist adjacent, yeah. using that type of language for people. Yeah, and, and as, as someone who's, I covered Trump for years, you, if you go back and you read his rhetoric, I mean, this goes actually all the way back to the 80s. Mm-hmm. Trump has a very long history of calling black people racist. And, or dumb. Or dumb, or using, you know, um, talking about Baltimore as being, you know, filthy, rat-infested, the same thing with uh, Congressman John Lewis's district mm-hmm. in the Atlanta suburbs. So th- he has a long history of that. Uh, these are, I, I don't know if we can even call them codes at this point, because I think that it's pretty transparent. But they, they are signals to his base who are much more prone uh, to see Black people in positions of power in particular uh, in a racial lens, even though what the DA is doing at this moment actually has absolutely nothing to do with race. I think we've got to just stick with the facts here, wait for them to unfold and not get distracted by what Trump is trying to do, which is to rile up his his base from a political perspective on this issue. So look, I, I want to get to this. Um, the Trump's defense attorney, Joe Tacopina, who has been on yeah. this network a lot, and he was on my old show at, at night a lot. He's defending this contradiction now uh, over now representing Trump in this case. And there was some you know issue about possibly him representing Stormy Daniels. We dug up this clip. It's from um, him claiming attorney-client privilege with Stormy Daniels this was back in 2018. I want to get your thoughts. Here it is, though. Joe, I understand that you had some communication with Stormy Daniels at some point. You know, obviously there's attorney-client issues. Let's put it this way. Um, oh, I was well, contacted. Um, go ahead. Well, 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 why? <laughs> well, I mean, oh, well, why? There was a, there the was a Jack right was asked, asked Jack, let him finish. The question, the question I was asked was whether I was contacted or, or asked to represent her. Um, the answer is yes, I was, but I can't go into anything further. I'm not representing her. Um, I don't represent her. I've never represented her. Listen, he is defending it, saying that I never represented, never spoke with her. But Trump's attorneys always somehow seem to become part of the story. Maybe he's right. I'm sure I'm assuming he's right and he's telling the truth, but they all, you know. They well, let's start with this. It is, has not actually been that easy for Trump to find attorneys, okay? <laughs> um, he is not picking from the top shelf here. There are a lot of people who don't want to represent Trump because Trump's lawyers tend to need to get lawyers. And um, I think this is probably one of those cases where you've got someone who, um, in addition to this clip, which uh, I think raises a lot of ethical questions, even potentially some legal ones, uh, Joe Tacopino also said that what Trump did was illegal. And there are a lot of people in Trump's orbit who've been on the other side of many legal issues uh, as it relates to Trump. But now that they work for him and they're getting paid, presumptively they're getting paid, although some of them 
don't. Uh, they're getting paid. Uh, they change their tune. Yeah. And I think that's actually pretty typical for Trump's orbit. And it's I, I'm not saying that Joe Takapina is not a good lawyer. I'm just saying that um, Trump it's has tough. to often pick from yeah. people who previously said that what he did was maybe illegal. He's uh, a tough client yeah. to represent exactly. because and usually you tell your client to be quiet and they do. But yeah. as you said, MAGA, since making attorneys get attorneys. <laughs> well said. Um, let's turn before you go to your yeah. special last night on TikTok following just an absolute grilling of TikTok yeah. CEO on Capitol Hill by notably both Republicans and Democrats seeming to have no, almost no defenders in that room. Yeah. Let's play this uh, exchange from uh, from the from the hearing between one of the lawmakers and Shuzi uh, Chu, here it was. Do any ByteDance employees in China, including engineers, currently have access to U.S. data? Uh, Congressman, uh, I would appreciate this. This is a complex uh, topic. Today, all data yes, is stored yes, by no. default. No, it's not that complex. Yes or no? Do they have access to user data? We have, after Project Texas is done. The answer is no. Today, there is still yes, some so data that we need yes, to delete. Do you think that Congress accomplished something for the American people in national security yesterday? I don't know that they got answers. I don't know that they got close to solutions. But that was a really key moment because I think it highlights the core of the problem. Moving forward, TikTok is saying they're going to fix this by housing the data here in the United States. But they can't really say that in the past or even right now that that data is not vulnerable. So I, I think that that is at the heart of the issue here, and it's why that hearing got so contentious. But when, when I talked, I mean, we had some TikTok influencers on last night, but we also had a lot of experts on who say that this is not just TikTok's problem. That's right. It's a bigger problem than that, and Congress really did nothing to explore that. They're the child for it now, yeah. but what is Congress going to do? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to deal with TikTok, but they're not going to deal with the rest of the industry where this is an issue, too. But the, the bottom line, as we uh, spoke with the one senator yesterday, said it, the difference here between TikTok and others, as you know, yeah, is that it is the Chinese communist government, the possibility of them having access. To uh, absolutely. Russia. But we should be clear, China is a state actor. If they want access to data that belongs to TikTok Don't or to Facebook any or to any company, there are ways yeah. that they can get it. So I'm not downplaying that risk, but there is risk all around all here, yeah. all around. Abby, thank you very much. Thank good you, to see you. Good, good to see you guys. Have a good weekend. Uh, starting this Sunday, by the way, we were just chatting about this. Abby gets to sleep a little bit longer. <laughs> Inside Politics Sunday moves to 11 a.m. Eastern time. We always watched it at 8 a.m. Now it's going to be 11 a.m. Eastern time, three hours later. Same we'll network, same great anchor. Whatever time it's on, we're going to watch, Abby. Thanks, Abby. So straight ahead, new video of the drone strike in Syria that killed a U.S. contractor and left five service members hurt. What we're learning this morning about about the U.S. response. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So brand new video just into CNN. Take a look at your screen right there. It, it appears to show the aftermath of a U.S. airstrike in eastern Syria against facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran. Now, the strike comes after an Iranian-made drone attacked a coalition base in northeast Syria, killing one U.S. contractor, injuring five U.S. service members and another American. In response, the U.S. carried out this precision airstrike in eastern Syria. That is according to 
the Pentagon. So joining us right now, Democratic Congresswoman uh, Mikey Sherrill. She's on the Armed Services Committee and is a former Navy helicopter pilot, and we're so happy to have her this morning. Uh, good morning to you. Thank you very much. First of all, what is your reaction to these airstrikes? Well, I sit on, as you said, the House Armed Services Committee, and we just heard testimony yesterday from CENTCOM about the Iranian threat. So to see these drone strikes, um, you know, was really uh, concerning given what we've seen Iran doing with their drones across the world, not just in Syria, but certainly supplying uh, Russia in the Ukraine war. Um, and so I think what we saw with the response by the United States, as promised from the president and the secretary of defense, um, it was measured. It was uh, not meant to be escalatory. But certainly uh, you cannot attack U.S. service members and, ha and U.S. contractors and have that go unmet with uh, equal force. Thank you for responding to that, Congresswoman. Yeah, and if we could also talk to you about your significant hearing last night on the uh, Chinese continued treatment of the Uyghur Muslim minority population in Xinjiang province that the UN has now called crime, a crime against humanity. Both the Trump and Biden administrations deem it gen genocide, though China denies this treatment of more than a million of these ethnic minorities. Uh, it, it came up, obviously you had a hearing focusing on it. It also came up yesterday significantly in the TikTok CEO hearing given that they are owned by Chinese company ByteDance. I want your response to this exchange. Listen. Do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? Congresswoman, you, if you use our app and you open it, you will find our users who that's get not, all sorts of content. That's not my question. My question is, do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? Well, it's really concerning to hear about all accounts of human rights abuse. It's a pretty easy question. Do you agree that the Chinese government has persecuted the Uyghur population? Congresswoman, I'm here to describe TikTok and what we do as a platform. Three opportunities to answer that and he didn't. What's your response? You know, this is something that we heard about last night from the Uyghurs that we had in our hearing. Um, we heard horrific stories from victims of the Chinese genocide, uh, from women who you know, you could hear the Chinese had used the particular vulnerabilities of women against them, rape, uh, forced abortions, forced sterilization uh, in the camps, shots that were said to be vitamin shots but stopped women's periods. It was really horrific to hear one woman describe a, a young person bleeding out from um, the Chinese abuse. So it was really horrific. And then we heard testimony that a lot of the surveillance architecture that the Chinese have used to commit this genocide was provided by um, platforms like the Chinese TikTok. And many of the Uyghurs inside the, the camps or arrested don't even understand why they were arrested. And it was often because of the tracking data used on their travels or who they were speaking to and where they went. So to hear then the CEO say he was there to talk about the TikTok platform and what they do, well, I certainly think a larger discussion of what they do would include uh, helping to perpetuate the genocide going so, on against the Uyghur people in China. Just to be clear, um, TikTok doesn't operate in China. They're, they're sort of Chinese counterpart, which is a separate company. But I know you understand that, just for our, our viewers to the understand. Right. 
The sep yes, the separate, and that is the testimony we heard um, with the yeah. separate Chinese TikTok company. But the concern then tied back here is the surveillance architecture that the that TikTok has uh, and the ability um, for the Chinese government to utilize the data that the American TikTok company has to surveil Americans here at home. Um, and that is what's so dangerous as we're understanding more and more about how they've utilized that within China and now seeing that they have those capabilities here. And I think what we heard last yesterday from the CEO of TikTok was in no way reassuring. Well, we'll continue to follow, and we appreciate you joining us uh, this morning. Thank you, Congresswoman Cheryl. Thank you. I Thank appreciate you. it. And in our next half hour, we're going to speak uh, to the White House's John Kirby about the drone strike in Syria and much more. Also, Eva Longoria is here showing us Mexico like we have not seen it before. We sat down with her ahead of her new CNN original series premiere, what she is saying about her work outside TV, and, huh, would she ever run for office? Mm -hmm. Interesting. You advised President Obama mm -hmm. on immigration issues. Uh -huh. I don't know. I'm not that. I'm not an advisor so much as I well, was, he asked I was you bothering questions. him. I was bothering him. He listened. <laughs> Actress, producer, director, and activist Eva Longoria is proud of her Mexican roots and deeply connected to the country that she calls her second home. Well, now, in a new CNN original series, Searching for Mexico, Longoria is following in the footsteps of Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy, and she takes us across some of Mexico's 32 states to see how its people, its culture, its landscape, and history have shaped its diverse cuisine. Watch this. Hola. Hola, buenos días, bienvenida. Chocolates van con churros, permítame. Gracias. This is El Moro. It's an institution in Mexico City. It's, you have to come here when you're in Mexico City. Churros and chocolate are a dream come true for my four-year-old son, Santi. Yeah! This one, but softly. Soft, soft, soft. Slow. This is the Chilango in the family. When it comes to food, we all have our guilty pleasures. For my son, it's chocolate and churros. For every son, it is chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. made better by churros. Yeah. Eva Longoria, the host of Searching with Mexico. Thank you for being here. Thanks Congratulations. For me. Thank you. It's a beautiful show. Yeah, that particular clip was like Santi on a sugar high for about three hours. I bet. I bet. Yeah. So look. You can do anything. You've shown us that. You really wanted to do this. You yeah. called this the adventure of a lifetime. Yes. Why did you want to take on this project? Because you pitched it to well, CNN. Yes. Well, they, Stanley and, and Amy came to me and they were like, we want to do a spinoff of... Amy and Tellis. Yes. Yeah. Of um, Searching for Italy and we want to do another country. And I was like, you have to do Mexico. I was like, Mexico is like a jewel of gastronomy. I mean, it really yeah. is so beautiful in its food culture and its food is so rooted in everything in the country and uh and so I pitched her on Mexico not so much uh, uh me I was like you should do Mexico somebody should do it but Mexico is like the place you should do next and uh and then they said yes and I was like oh gosh now I have to do it but it was and you so did it fun. for and I did four it. months four months straight yes you brought your four-year-old, yeah. which we got to see him. Yes, there. and you know, my husband, we live in Mexico City. Yeah. And my husband's from Mexico City. And, 
And he went with me kind of on the six different states. And even he was like, where am I? Like, what is that? Like, he was introduced because to Because you a discovered a lot. Yeah. When it, searching is truly what you did. You discovered yeah. a lot. Even though you call it your second home, yeah. there were so many things about it that you yeah. didn't know. No. And, you know, I think the identity of Mexican cuisine is like tacos, tequila, tacos, tequila, yeah. which they do very well. <laughs> and I'm all for it. But there's so much more. And the country's so diverse. What I was struck by in this is also the pride that you showed on full display in mm-hmm. each of the states you went to. Yeah. That was important for you to highlight. 1,000%. Yeah. I don't think there was a day I didn't cry from somebody's storytelling. And the way they tell stories through their food is amazing. And if you're talking about food, that's the easiest entry point to any culture. You call yourself a Texican, born in Texas <laughs> with Mexican roots. But you've also talked about what's been... Um, a significant part of your life and also really difficult at times, straddling the hyphen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when I'm in here in the United States, I'm they're like, oh, you're Mexican. And then I'm in Mexico and they're like, oh, you're the American. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm one of you, too. You know, and, uh, especially, you know, being married to a Mexican national, you know, it's it's really my household's very fun. Like we argue about flour tortillas versus corn tortillas. And flour all the way. Flour you? all the way. All the way. But that's because we're Americans. <laughs> <laughs> that is truly not a true Mexican. We have this fight all the time. Um, but it's it's really um, I love uh, uh, my heritage, my culture, my roots, yeah. and uh, and this show really gave me a deeper appreciation for that side of of my family. Um, and I think it's going to give people a deep appreciation for the country. So I want to talk even outside of the series about your evolution and, and your purpose, because, you know, I think I came to know you from Desperate Housewives. Yes. Just incredible. Didn't miss an episode. Right. <laughs> and you became this famous actress at the same time on that journey. You became and continue to be a loud voice for rights, for what you believe in mm-hmm. and also standing up for the voiceless many mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Uh, your sister Elizabeth, who was born with special needs, yeah. has been a big inspiration to you. Yeah. How do you think about purpose at this stage in your life? Well, you know, I was lucky to grow up in a family that exposed me to volunteerism very early. My earliest memories are Special Olympics. I remember my mom made us go and be huggers at the Special Olympics. She made us volunteer at the Salvation Army, at the Boys and Girls Club. Every Thanksgiving, we had to go to the soup kitchen first before we had our Thanksgiving. Good mom. Like, she's great. I mean amazing mom. So she didn't um, teach me how to be philanthropic or an advocate. She showed me. It was just part of expected. who we were. It was absolutely expected. So before I was famous, this was my work. Yeah. This was my life's mission. Um, and because I have a special needs sister, like our whole family was so selfless and everything revolved around her needs, what she needed, what was going to improve her quality of life. And, uh, and that's a gift. I love that you, despite all the fame, you then went back to school. Yeah. You went to get your master's in Chicano studies. Mm -hmm. And you had a deep desire to know more about issues you were speaking out on. Yeah. You advised President Obama... Mm-hmm. On immigration issues, uh-huh. I don't know. I'm not that. I'm not an advisor so much as I well, was. He asked I was you bothering questions. him. I was bothering. Well, he listened. <laughs> From all my research, he like, listened to you. What is happening with this thing? Yeah, but you know, I did go back because I, I, I am an activist, and I, and I wanted to have a deeper knowledge. I'm, a, I'm extremely curious about um, many issues and how policies affect people, and so I wanted to make 
the connection or connect the dots of like, but why, I kept asking, but why, but why is this like that? Mm -hmm. Why are these rights dismantled since the civil rights movements? Why mm -hmm. do we have to keep fighting for this or that? One of your main causes has been on immigration and immigration reform in this country and so many failed attempts at it. You've called it mind boggling. That's the word you use. Oh, did I? I'm sure yeah. I've called it worse. Yeah. Things. But what do you think? It's not, it's a complicated issue and I get it. And, it, and there's many tenants of it. You know, we have, we have many industries dependent upon migrant labor. So we can't um, welcome that labor force, but not treat them with humanity. Do you ever think about running for office to actually no. do something about no. these? No. And I think the most powerful part of democracy is the citizen. I think the misconception is you have to be a politician mm. to be political. So let's let's end where we began on the show. Yes. Tell us where you will take us this season. <gasps> We're going to six states. Um, it's, it's such a beautiful journey. Everybody's going to want to go to Mexico after watching the show, as you should, and visit all these places I went to. But we go to Mexico City, which is really a microcosm of the rest of the country because everything is represented in Mexico City. Uh, we go to the Yucatan, Jalisco, Monterrey, Veracruz, and Oaxaca. And it was, it was really a, a, a journey of a lifetime for me. A phenomenal uh, series. I can attest to that. Congratulations. Thank we're you. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks, Eva. You were just saying. I've you... been to Oaxaca. Yeah, this, yeah. Gorgeous. Okay. I have I take an issue with you, Poppy. Why? I'm team corn tortilla. Oh, ew. <laughs> Dry, not. But Eva said that's the real deal. Yeah. It's just because I'm yeah. American that I like flour tortilla. It's much better. She is a force. She's a force. I, you know when you want people to be great because you love them on TV or in their public life yeah. and then they disappoint you? Not, She's opposite. Never meet your heroes, they say, because but, you'll inevitably be disappointed, but not her. I was amazed by her. And the series, I've watched a few full episodes. It's incredible. So much fun. So heartwarming. I loved her. And I do think she should run for office. Just saying. I'm neither a jealous nor an envious person, except I love Eva. <laughs> Sorry. Next time, yeah. next time, the CNN original series <laughs> Eva Longoria searching for Mexico. It premieres here Sunday, 10 p.m. Eastern. Up next, the U.S. launching strikes in Syria after an American contractor was killed in a drone attack. There, the White House John Kirby standing by is going to join us uh, and talk to us about America's response. There he is from Canada. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Welcome back. The U.S. military striking back after a deadly drone attack killed an American contractor and wounded five U.S. troops in Syria. The Pentagon says an Iranian-made drone struck a base in northeastern Syria. An official tells CNN it was a one-way drone, we've just learned that, that intentionally crashed into its target. And the president of the United States, Joe Biden, responding with airstrikes against groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard in Syria. This is a video circulating on social media that appears to show the flaming aftermath of the U.S. strikes. U.S. still has roughly 900 troops on the ground in Syria to help fight what's left of ISIS. Just yesterday, their commander warned Congress that Iran has been using proxy militias to attack American soldiers with drones and rockets. The White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby joins us now. He's in Ottawa traveling uh, with the president. Uh, good morning to you, sir. We appreciate you joining us here. Can you please 
Walk us through the president's decision to authorize this retaliatory strike. What did he and others have to weigh? He had a discussion with his national security team on the way up here to Ottawa uh, in the wake uh, of the drone strike uh, on our base in Syria um, and uh, received uh, recommendations uh, from the from Defense Department leaders uh, and the intelligence community uh, about uh, what response options could look like. Uh, he made the decision uh, very, very shortly uh, in, in that discussion to, uh, to authorize these strikes against these particular targets. Is there anything you can tell us about the U.S. contractor killed? I'm afraid not. I mean, uh, we're trying to give the family some uh, time and, uh, and space yeah. here to, to grieve. They just got devastating news yesterday. Uh, we do know uh, that uh, he was an American citizen uh, and a contractor working uh, for us uh, at that particular base. Uh, but again, uh, Poppy, I think you can understand we're, we're going to give them a little bit yeah. of privacy right now. Of just course. to follow to Poppy's question there, uh, what are the things that U.S. That, can the U.S. do anything to help keep um, the personnel and U.S. contractors safe there? Well, the actions that we took yesterday are part and parcel of that effort, Don. I mean, we're going to work uh, to protect uh, our people and, and our facilities as best we can. It's a dangerous environment. You said it at the top. We're there to defeat ISIS, to ensure the enduring defeat of ISIS. They are still a threat uh, in Syria. They are still a threat in, in Iraq. Nowhere near what they were back in 2014, of course. But they're still there. They're still plotting. They're still planning. Uh, they're still resourcing. They're still training. And obviously, uh, they're still capable of conducting operations. And we've got militant groups uh, that that uh, are supported by Iran, uh, that are the ones right. conducting these attacks uh, against our, our troops and our facilities. We're going to continue to uh, to do whatever we can to defend themselves. And if we have to retaliate like we did yesterday, we'll do that. I think the, the question also becomes sort of how is this measured and is this an act that is indicative um, of what is to come? We know that Iran has been building these increasingly sophisticated uh, drones selling them to Russia, for example, in the, in the fight against Ukraine. And it was just striking that yesterday, John, it was the commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East at this hearing on Capitol Hill who said this. Listen. What Iran does to hide its hand is they use Iranian proxies. That's uh, that's either UAVs or or rockets to be able to attack our forces in either Iraq or Syria. And then that literally is what happened overnight. Do, do you believe that these attacks could be considered an act of war by Iran? We don't seek a war with Iran. We're not uh, looking for an armed conflict with that country or another war uh, in the region. We do seek to protect our mission in Syria, which is about defeating ISIS, and we do mm -hmm. seek to make sure we can protect our people and our, our facilities against these uh, Iran-backed groups. These are militant groups that Iran is funding, resourcing, um, even training. Uh, and they've got facilities there. Iran and the IRGC has facilities there in Syria, from which a lot of that resourcing and training and facilitation uh, occurs. And it was against uh, some of those targets, again, that we, uh, that we struck back last night. Let me see how else I can ask you um, this question because my my question, I think Poppy's question, it, it's like, what can we do preemptively? Not because this is we retaliated. The U, meaning the United States retaliated. Iranian proxies have attacked um, U.S. forces about 78 times yeah. with these unmanned aerial vehicles. That was since 2021. That's according to the Pentagon. So the question is, how do you stop it from happening again? I'm talking preemptively. I don't mean retaliating for a strike when when they strike us, but preemptively, John. Yeah. 
And I appreciate the que- I appreciate the question. Look, uh, we uh, we're not seeking a conflict with Iran, as I said. Um, we've been very clear uh, with the Iranians uh, and with our partners about how serious we are, the mission that we're doing in Syria is, and how much we're going to protect uh, that mission. Uh, uh, Iran should not be involved in supporting these attacks uh, on uh, on our facilities or on our people. We've made that very very clear. Uh, we're going to continue to to be vigilant, to monitor this as best we can. Um, but look, I think if you broaden this back out a little bit, you've got a country in Iran who is supporting now drone strikes in Ukraine, uh, helping Mr. Putin continue to kill innocent Ukrainian. You, you have innocent Ukrainians. You have uh, Iran supporting terrorist groups throughout the Middle East, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, uh, targeting uh, our allies and partners uh, in Israel. Uh, and of course, you got Iran conducting maritime threats uh, to, to shipping in and out of the Persian Gulf. They're continuing to grow a, a burgeoning ballistic missile program. So to your question, what we've got to do is make sure that we have adequate military capabilities uh, that, to meet our security requirements throughout the region to, to counter and to thwart uh, Iran's destabilizing behavior. And we're going to do that. And you heard a lot of that from General Carilla yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we certainly did. The timing was just striking, given what he warned of and what happened. Let, let me just end on, if we could, given that you are the National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications, the other, a, another national security concern is TikTok. And we saw what happened at the hearing with the CEO of TikTok yesterday. Um, the, I want to yeah. ask you about an exchange between uh, Congressman Buck and Secretary Blinken. Listen. Well, you say the challenge it poses. Is it a threat to United States security? Uh, I believe that it is, yes. And shouldn't a threat to United States security be banned? They do it to us. It should, Why don't we do it to it, them? It should be ended one, uh, one way or another, and there are different ways of doing that. Now that you've heard for hours from the CEO of TikTok, is it the Biden administration's position that TikTok is more of a national security threat than previously believed or less of one? Did he convince you? His t- his testimony didn't uh, change our view one way or the other, Poppy, that there are real national security challenges with respect to that application. That's why the president has banned it from government uh, devices. Uh, we have concerns over data. We have concerns over privacy. We have concerns over uh, information sharing and the flow of that information uh, back to Beijing. That's why it's banned on government devices. There is, as you know, an ongoing uh, Committee on Foreign Investment review independent, of course, into TikTok and yeah. to uh, uh, applications like TikTok. We got we to gotta let that process know, play out. It's an independent years. review. We don't want to get ahead of that. That's taken years, CFIUS review, and that's Again, why the House, that's why Congress is getting involved. I just want to ask you before Don moves on to another important topic, and that is Tony Blinken said in that, the Secretary Blinken said in that soundbite about TikTok, quote, it should be ended one way or another. Is that the position then of the Biden administration? We obviously want to deal with all national security threats in the appropriate way and mitigate or end them as much as we can. What Secretary Blinken was referring to is there's different ways to do that. And he was being careful, again, not to get ahead of the CFIUS review. Uh, we've got to let that play out. But we are certainly willing to continue to work with Congress to, to deal with the challenges here presented by TikTok. Yeah, we got to talk to you about during this. We see beautiful backdrop in <laughs> Ottawa behind you. Uh, you're in Canada with the president. CNN has learned that uh, the U.S. and Canada have struck now this uh, deal on changes to a decades-old asylum agreement that would restrict certain migrants from seeking protections in Canada. What can we expect to hear from President Biden and from um, Justin Trudeau today? 
The president's real excited to be here in Ottawa to meet with the pr Prime Minister Trudeau. They'll have some bilateral discussions. He'll get a chance to address uh, Parliament, and then he'll obviously, he and the Prime Minister will talk to, to members of the press corps. And I think uh, migration will clearly be uh, top on the agenda of, of the concerns that the, the, these two leaders are going to discuss, in addition to other things like uh, like climate change and, and certainly trade and economic practices, maybe, and the situation in Haiti. There's a lot on the agenda. Migration will certainly be, be discussed. I won't get ahead of any uh, thing that the the prime minister or the president might say specifically about it but this is a shared regional challenge and when they were both in mexico city uh for the north american leaders summit they all talked about the fact that we've got to take a holistic comprehensive regional approach here there are more people on the move in the western hemisphere right now than there has been since world war ii it's staggering the numbers of people that are moving throughout the hemisphere and affects canada it certainly affects the united states we've got to take a holistic approach and i think you're going to see both leaders talk about about that approach today. John Kirby in Ottawa with the president. Thank you, John. We appreciate it. You bet. This morning, China says it would, quote, firmly oppose any for sale of TikTok. It is the first direct response to the Biden administration's demand that the app's Chinese owners sell that part of their company or potentially face a ban. This response from Beijing came just hours after the CEO of TikTok was grilled on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers raised concerns about its ties to Beijing. ByteDance is not owned or controlled by the Chinese government. There are more than 150 million Americans who love our platform, and we know we have a responsibility to protect them. He tried to convince lawmakers that this app should not be banned. He faced claims that TikTok is a, quote, weapon of the Chinese Communist Party to spy on users. That was a claim. We should note that there has been no public evidence presented to support that claim, but lawmakers really appeared unconvinced. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. Well, you know what? I, have I, asked find, that that, I find that actually preposterous. I, I have I, uh, I, looked I, in. I, I have really seen don't. no evidence of this happening. Mm. And in order to assure everybody here and all our users, our commitment is to move the data in into the United States to be stored on American soil by an American company, overseen by American personnel. I don't believe that TikTok has, uh, that you have said or done anything to convince us that uh, that, that um, information, the personal information of 150 million Americans, uh, that the Chinese government is not going to give that up. Let's bring in Kara Swisher, host of the podcast On with Kara Swisher, and of course, Pivot. Good morning. It's been a while, Kara. Good to see you. I know. How you doing? Good <laughs> to doing see great. you. Good to see you. So uh, you heard what John Kirby had to say. Poppy had the you know great yeah. questions asking him. What, do you want to respond to mm -hmm. what he had to say? Well, I mean, the, the issue is how are they going to do it? Because, you know, the Trump administration had sort of tried this along the edges before, and it's really hard because they can say they want to ban it. They've got to actually ban it because they need, as as uh, Mr. Chu talked about, evidence. They have to show their evidence that this is a threat, and that's why it's going through the, the various agencies of government, uh, including the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. So I think they can say they want to ban it. Banning it's going to be a lot harder because of something called the First Amendment here. Mm. And selling it's hard because of something we call capitalism. They, they, they may not be able to be forced to sell it without proof. Well, also China's 2020 law protecting uh, intellectual mm -hmm. property might really block a sale as well in terms of selling it to U.S. company. Yeah. Do you think, yeah. I know this won't be a popular question, but mm -hmm. do you think what happened yesterday on Capitol Hill was 
productive and fair to the American people. There were a lot of times and he didn't even get to fully answer. Well, that's typical, right? You've seen these hearings. It's sort of like this is what they yeah, do with I all know, the social media this people. Really and matters. Then they do nothing. Yeah. It does. But it mattered it mattered when they didn't do anything about Facebook and privacy and algorithms and antitrust. What they do is they like to put on a show and then do precisely nothing. This is their version of doing something, which is calling attention to it and then giving a speech. But it, they've got to actually do things. And it, it applies to not just uh, TikTok. It's a special case, certainly, because of the worries about the Chinese government. And they're good worries and concerns. They kept saying the word concerns to have. It's just they've got to, They've never done it with anything else. And now suddenly they're all incensed about privacy. This is an issue globally. And it's definitely more of an issue because this is a company based in China and they should have these concerns, including national security concerns, but they need proof and they need Mm -hmm. to do something about it. And that's going to be more difficult. And, you know, they can, you know, I don't believe it. It's preposterous. Well, show me the proof. Unfortunately, that's what they've got to do here. And they haven't done that yet. Well, that's a question then, because uh, let's talk more about that, because there has yet, there Mm -hmm. has not been any public evidence that shows that China is actually spying on right. people through TikTok. A little bit. There's been a little bit. There's been a little bit with the, the journalist. With the, with, the, with the journalist, yeah. right? And they have said this is a rogue reporter. I mean, I think the problem with that is, I mean, excuse me, not rogue reporter, it was a rogue uh, employee of, of TikTok. Now, that's the issue. If a rogue employee could get that information, so could and probably does the Chinese government. I just don't know. And I think that's what they have to figure out. They have to prove that. And in the case of the reporter, it did happen, but they are saying it was a rogue employee. So, you know, and a one-time thing. And that's happened at other companies too, uh, spying Twitter, I recall. There was one at Facebook, et cetera. Do they need so. to show Americans more proof and then other just the, the example that you mentioned? Yeah, they do. They need to they need to show that it's a national security issue, because unless that they don't do that, they're going to need an act of Congress. And then you have the First Amendment and judges have been very loath to do this, including in the Trump administration. So it's a long way from saying, I cannot believe you, sir, to actually doing something about it. And that's the difficulty. And then we're in the middle of a really tense period with China. And so there's there's going to be retaliation obviously, but they actually can't retaliate much because none of our companies are there. And that's a really big issue that they can operate here and we cannot operate there as freely. And that that's that's something that needed to be addressed for many years, but hasn't been either. You never know where Kara Swisher is going to be. Is it San Francisco? Is it Washington? Is it New York? Who San, Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco. San <laughs> Francisco. Super early. You yeah, must really love us. Real it's super it's five in the morning. I, I must because literally all I want to do is fall asleep right now. But you're so fascinating. <laughs> hey, welcome Dawn. to our lives. It's hard not to. Oh, thank you. Are you are you off you for a nap? It. You picked right now? it. You picked it. I am going to go right to sleep. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Nighty night. Thank you, Kara. Appreciate it. Thank you. See you. So overnight, former President Trump ramping up the rhetoric in response to his legal scrutiny. And one of his defense attorneys is about to testify before a federal grand jury without attorney-client privilege. So how is all of this resonating with voters? How is it resonating? There are some voters right there. We're going to ask a group of political reporters on the ground in purple states the responses they are seeing in their community. It's going to be fascinating. So stay tuned on the other side of this break. Well, this morning, former President Trump posting that there could be, quote, death and destruction if he is indicted in the Manhattan District Attorney's probe into the alleged hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Sources tell CNN that grand jury jury will reconvene on Monday 
and on a separate investigation over classified documents. Later today, Trump's defense attorney, Evan Corcoran, will appear before that grand jury, and he will have to testify because he was denied attorney-client privilege. Both significant developments. CNN's Caitlin Polance is live in Washington. So let's talk about Evan Corcoran. What do you expect prosecutors will ask him today? Well, Poppy, we have a little bit of insight into that. We think that they're going to be asking largely about the response to the Justice Department trying to get back all of the classified documents from Mar-a-Lago. The response was not adequate uh, because it ultimately led to the FBI performing a search approved by a court at Mar-a-Lago, finding hundreds more classified records. Evan Corcoran was the point person in responding to the federal government as they were investigating this criminally last year leading up to that search. So we think that he's going to be asking questions about that. But I want to emphasize how critical of a day this is for the special counsel's investigation. This has been an extremely active grand jury. We know that there have been lots of people subpoenaed to it, more than two dozen who are working around the president or at Mar-a-Lago. The grand jury was even active yesterday. But this is different today. It's because this is a defense lawyer for Donald Trump, and he is being forced to come back in here and testify to the grand jury in secret, answer questions that Trump's team fought very hard not to have him answer. And we also expect him to turn over documents, handwritten notes he has, if he hasn't turned those over already to the Justice Department. Poppy? So, so rare to have that attorney-client privilege punctured in a way like this. Caitlin, thanks very much. Don. All right. So how is this all this all this legal scrutiny of the former president playing with voters around the country? We invited a trio of reporters to tell us what they're hearing in their states. It's very important. So pay attention to this because it's not just what's happening in New York and Washington and on the coast. Editorial writer for the Star Tribune in Minneapolis is Patricia Lopez, Axios reporter from Phoenix, Arizona, Jeremy Duda and political editor with the Tampa Bay Times in Florida, Emily Mahoney. Thank you all for joining us. Emily, I'm going to start with you. And good morning to you, by the way. I know it's uh, quite early for Jeremy, so I really appreciate Jeremy joining us, all of you, but especially Jeremy. Uh, Emily, I'm going to start with you in Florida. In Florida, where, um, where Governor Ron DeSantis poses the greatest potential threat to Trump's 2024 run, how are voters reacting to all of these investigations? Right. So even before some of the latest news with the, these investigations, I'd been talking to voters, um, you know, covering various events where Governor Ron DeSantis has sort of been ramping up this this campaign or shadow campaign for president. And among DeSantis supporters, you know, who really overlap with people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, there has been a growing sense that Donald Trump it could really be hindered both politically and in a potential administration by uh, what they see as mounting sort of deep state resistance to him. And I think that the the latest revelations with these investigations will really only add to that sense that he faces so much resistance that uh, they're turning to Ron DeSantis as an alternative person who they see as being more likely to be successful politically and also would be able to have more control over his own administration. And I think that these, like I said, the, the latest news kind of will only add to that sentiment. So, Emily, the, the, to shorthand what you're saying here, too much drama, enough is enough. They're ready to move on to some, someone else. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I mean, obviously, uh, Florida is not exactly... Um, 
you know, representative of the entire country because DeSantis just won re-election here by more than 19 points. And so he's very popular here. But I do think that is the sentiment among um, Trump slash DeSantis supporters here in the state. On the other hand, I will also say, though, that Trump and DeSantis have both proven very adept at taking up a lot of oxygen in the news cycle. Mm -hmm. And in Florida, typically we talk almost 24 seven about DeSantis. He is very good at producing headlines at a very steady pace. He does so intentionally. Um, and with all of the Trump news recently and with these investigations sort of looming over the country, it has very dramatically sort of reoriented the conversation in the news cycle, even here in Florida, where DeSantis is now being asked about Trump having to form a position on, on these <clears throat> investigations. And so I think if this continues, it will prove interesting because Trump is now sort of once again at the center of the Republican universe. Gotcha. OK, Jeremy, I want to come to you now, because during the 2022 midterms, several Trump picked candidates were defeated in their races. Carrie Lake for governor, um, secretary of state candidate Mark Fincham and also attorney general uh, candidate Abe Hamaday. What does that say about Trump's influence in your state? And do these investigations move the needle for voters? Well, I think what it says about Trump's influence is that, at least as of last year, he still has a tremendous amount of influence within the Republican primaries, perhaps a lot less so in the general election. This is still, if you look at the voter registration numbers, a you know, somewhat red-leaning red state, but you saw Democrats run the table in all these big statewide races last year. And I think the general sentiment is beca that's because of all these Trump-backed candidates who came out of the primary. Now, so far, I don't think the uh, news out of New York is really filtering down much to voters yet here in Arizona. But if that indictment comes, which seems like that's expected, I think it'll be fascinating to see the effect that has in the primary. I think it could have the effect of pushing folks away from Trump a little more, at least, uh, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who want to see that influence diminished in the primaries next year. We have, a, you know, probably one of the biggest Senate races in the country coming up next year. It could also have the effect of galvanizing his supporters, you know, probably the leading prospective candidate for the Senate is Carrie Lake, the uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate who was defeated last year, very closely allied with uh, former President Trump. She was at Mar-a-Lago for his presidential announcement. She's being spoken of as a possible running mate if he's the nominee. So when that comes, she will certainly, you know, rally around him. A lot of her supporters will as well. So it will be interesting to see if that kind of gives her a boost. I think she's already probably viewed as the leading candidate if she gets in, and that could kind of bolster that a little more. Yeah, it's interesting because it goes back to the um, what happened during the midterms and the qualified candidates argument uh, that Republicans were, were making, like Mitch McConnell, we need to run qualified candidates and also uh, Republican leaders in Congress as well saying the same thing. Patricia, I want to turn to you. Minneapolis was ground zero for social justice protests following George Floyd's murder, with Trump famously tweeting, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, and calling the protesters thugs, among other things. What does the average voter think about these investigations and, and how it would affect Trump in the primaries? I think, you know, Minnesota as a whole has some serious Trump fatigue. Um, and that the, the best evidence of that is in the November elections, voters completely swept Democrats into power at the highest levels. There are no um, high level Republicans to even fly the flag for Trump. Uh, party leaders don't talk about him. Um, I think the reaction has been muted uh, at best. Our, our governor, uh, Tim Walz, uh, said earlier that while he, you know, everyone has a right to protest, um, all of their um, uh, officials were looking for signs of possible planned protests, civil disturbance, 
something that might be akin to what happened earlier, and they've found no evidence of that. Yeah. What is the, the issues that voters are talking about as we head towards 2024? I'm going to start with you, Patricia. If you can give me a quick, what are the issues? What are people concerned about in Minneapolis and, where, and the area you cover? I think, you know, they're concerned about crime, they're concerned about education, um, about health care, the, the usual, but they're also uh, quite alarmed at the anti-trans, anti-gay um, legislation that's sweeping the country. I think they want to um, guard against that. I mean, it's not uniform. Um, rural Minnesota tends to be uh, more conservative, uh, but yeah. it's, uh, um, it's not... Um, It's it's not it's not a uniform thing. Okay. They have to. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. Jeremy. Um, well, obviously, inflation is a big concern all over the country. And it, here in Phoenix, we've had some of the highest inflation rates in the country. I think probably voters are focused on that more than anything. You know, the border. We're right here. You're right here on the U.S.-Mexico border. This is always a major concern in Arizona. I think, especially after what we've seen the last couple of years, attempts to undermine elections. I think that has kind of moved the needle a bit and really filtered down to the electorate. And we still see, you know, some of that uh, going on now at the legislature. Okay. Um, and then, you know. We'll have to see what really kind of rises to the forefront with voters, you know, by the time uh, the elections roll around next year. But I think those three issues, especially inflation and the border, are always going to be at the uh, kind of forefront of voters' minds out here. All right. Emily? Yeah, I would echo uh, similar things here in Florida. Education is always top of mind for people. And Florida has also experienced a, a good chunk of the inflation and um is also experiencing just a, a rapid loss of affordability here because of, of an influx of new residents in part. And so I think that economic issues are always are always top of mind and particularly are, are poignant here in Florida right now. Fascinating to hear from all three of you. And again, we really appreciate you joining us here. We hope that you'll come back. And great reporting. Thanks so much to Patricia Lopez, Emily Mahoney and Jeremy Duda. Poppy, interesting. I loved that. Yeah, it was Thank great, you. right? They, We're the not on the... they talk about yeah. education, affordability, right? And, yeah. and We're not on the ground in those states. They are covering it day in and day out. Yeah. Uh, that was great, Don. Thank you. Okay, so coming up, controversial judicial reforms and now a new law that protects Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu even more as Israel on edge. Jake Tapper interviewed Netanyahu exclusively earlier this year. He'll join us on that. And to preview his one-on-one -on -one with Ted Lasso star Jason Sudeikis. Coach, I'm, I'm sorry. You know what the happiest animal on earth is? It's a goldfish. You know why? No. Got a 10-second memory. Be a goldfish, Sam. Yeah. Those are protests following Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to London. Check out the scene outside of Downing Street where Netanyahu just ignored questions from reporters. This comes after he said he is not backing down on his plan to significantly weaken Israel's Supreme Court in spite of weeks of angry protests. In a fiery speech on primetime television last night, he declared, quote, it is not the end of democracy. It is the strengthening of democracy. That is not all. His government, the parliament yesterday, just narrowly passed a new law that limits ways to oust a sitting prime minister or declare them unfit for office. 
His critics are condemning it, saying it's just an effort to protect his own job. Remember, Netanyahu is still in the middle of an ongoing corruption trial. So let's bring in our Jake Tapper, CNN Chief Washington Correspondent, anchor of the lead and State of the Union. Because, Jake, you just sat down for that long primetime interview with Netanyahu. And now this defiance says, I'm going to doing all these things that help him. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, the attorney general of Israel has said that Netanyahu uh, is breaking the law yeah. because there was a court mandated conflict of uh, conflict of interest agreement when his government formed in which he agreed to not do anything uh, related to the judiciary, given the fact that he's on trial for these separate uh, corruption charges. Uh, and he seems to not be, at least according to the attorney general of Israel, uh, adhering to that agreement. Uh, by actually taking steps to weaken the judiciary. The move uh, that just happened obviously uh, makes it tougher for judges, for a judiciary to remove a prime minister. Uh, And actually he now, after that law passed, uh, Netanyahu said uh, that his hands are no longer tied. Um, So there is a brazenness about this, and I guess we'll see how it plays out in terms of uh, Netanyahu trying to weaken the independent judiciary in Israel. Uh, Jake, I want to talk to you about something else because I can't wait to to see this tonight. This, this uh, something that has a huge cultural impact. You sat down with the star and the co-creator of the smash hit Ted Lasso. I mean, everyone is talking about Ted Lasso, right? Jason Sudeikis is who I'm talking about. It's an interview that's going to air tonight, nine o'clock on CNN. It's, uh, let's uh, preview the conversation, then we'll get your response. Here it is. Since I've known you, um, you've always been very in touch with your humanity. You've always been very in touch with like an acknowledging of. Insecurities, mm-hmm. imposter syndrome. I mean, you sure. talk very openly about this. Sure. And it's such a part of the DNA of Ted Lasso. Yeah. Um, why? Like, where does that come from? I, I think, again, this innate sense that we're all more you know, similar than, than sometimes we're, we're allowed to feel or, 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 or want to feel. There is something worse out there than being sad, and that is being alone and being sad. Ain't nobody in this room alone. And I don't think I was always that way, or maybe I was, but I would only share it with, with a few people, sometimes maybe people I didn't know that well. Um, but I also didn't want to burden folks with it, you know, and I think any of us can feel that way, where we don't want to burden our, our stuff with other people because we don't think we're worthy of it, we don't think they want to hear it, and, and I still struggle with it. So this is more relatable to, I think, everyone, especially coming out of COVID, right, and dealing with, uh, we still don't know um, the impact of uh, mental health issues following COVID. But it's something that many of us on the air have been very transparent about, depression, getting therapy, and so on and so forth. I don't think it was a surprise to you that Jason Zedekas would admit that, imposter syndrome and such and such. I think many, many people suffer from issues like that. Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons why Jason has been so successful in this role, uh, taking what was kind of just a, a funny uh, ad campaign idea in 2013 and taking, taking it, turn, turning it into this award-winning show. It's only been, there have only been two seasons mm-hmm. and they've already won 11 Emmys and broken records for uh, premieres on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, and I think it's that humanity, the acknowledgement of the humanity that comes through in Ted Lasso uh, that is one of the reasons why, especially emerging as it did in 2020, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of a pretty nasty political season, uh, why so many people uh, have found comfort in it, why it has become a, such a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and they were just at the White House oh, discussing on mental, this, health. On, on mental health, talking about this. I mean, even elevating the issue even more. 
Yeah, no, it's remarkable, and we talked about that too. Obviously, Jason, uh, when he was on SNL, uh, he would play uh, Joe Biden. Uh, I thought rather hilariously. I thought his I thought his Biden was the best Bidens uh, of all the Bidens. But of course, it was a different Biden. It was a the two thousand the two thousand eight Biden, not not the twenty uh, twenty three Biden. But um, so that was interesting too that he got to that he had this encounter uh, with President Biden, who he had played. Uh, to a hilarious effect previously. Yeah. I can't wait to see it yeah. tonight. My favorite Jason Sudeikis SNL was the tracksuit and the gold chain backup dancer. That's my favorite yeah. one. Yeah. Jake, can't wait. <laughs> On what you. up with that? Yeah, what, what, up, what up with that? <laughs> what up with that? Thank you. It's good to see you, Jake. <laughs> we'll be watching this weekend. Have a great weekend, all right? See you guys. All right, we'll Bye. be watching tonight as well. Thank you. Jake's sit-down interview with Jason Sudeikis airs on CNN, uh, CNN Primetime. That's tonight, 9 Eastern. Well, from one funny man to another this weekend, only here on CNN, you can also watch Adam Sandler receive the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. A preview is next. Gee, I can't wait till I go to hike school. Don't you say that. Don't you ever say that. Stay here. Stay as long as you can. For the love of God, cherish it. Are you too good for your home? Answer me! Ha 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 ha! Shut up! You want a happy meal? We'll get you one of those happy meals. You got a happy meal? Can we get a happy meal? Will somebody get you a happy meal? So many classic moments, right? Adam Sandler has created some of the most iconic movies and characters in comedy. He's an actor, comedian, producer, mus musician, and now he is a recipient of the 2023 Mark Twain Prize for American Humor that recognizes individuals who have had an impact on American society for more than three decades. Adam Sandler has made all of us laugh, first bursting onto the scene and quickly becoming a favorite on Saturday Night Live. Put on your yarmulke, here comes Hanukkah, so much funnukkah to celebrate Hanukkah. On the big screen, he was the master, is the master, at playing goofy but lovable guy next door characters, also delivers complex characters in one of my favorite movies when he was a ruthless diamond dealer in Uncut Gems and an NBA scout for the Philadelphia 76ers in Hustle, also a great movie. Through it all, Sandler remains an artist his co-stars admire. I feel like in a great way he's already cemented his place in comedy history. He's always been very, very real, and I think that's what people really connect with. If you have to have a number one, he is. Nobody's lasted this long with this big a career. I think, you know, his comedy will live on for generations, so someday they'll be giving the Adam Sandler Award. My father was the man who showed me uh, comedy growing up. He showed me the Marx Brothers and Jerry Lewis. My dad always told me I could work for him. He'd say, he'd say to me, I, he'd, he'd try it out a year or two. If it doesn't go well, you become an electrical contractor with me. Uh, Sunday night, you can watch Sandler receive his honor with some of his famous friends, including co-stars Jennifer Aniston, Judd Apatow, Drew Barrymore, all on CNN, 8 p.m. Sunday night. Can't wait to Cannot watch wait. that. So it's in the name, right? There were some sweet nice <laughs> wins during the, the Sweet 16 round of March Madness. We're breaking down the major wins and the mad upsets. That's next. See you watch.
I wonder whose mellifluous voice Whose voice that is. was that? Who is that? Third seed of Kansas State took down seventh seed Michigan State in the thrilling Sweet 16 Classic. I can't do it like that. The Wildcats clawing their way to the Elite Eight in overtime. Joining us now, the man whose voice you just heard calling the action is Brian Anderson, play-by-play announcer covering the tournament with just down the street at Madison Square Garden here in New York City. Hello. Do you get – welcome. You said you're not Thank usually you. up this early, so let me get your energy We're, we're second shifters, Don. You got me up <laughs> way too early. You got it at midnight last night. But Do you good. get caught up in the emotion oh, yeah. when you're doing it? Because you can't fake that, right? No, you, you're in it. That's the beauty of it. That's why I wanted to do this job in the first place, is to be in the scene, you know, feel the energy of the scene and uh, just uh, all that comes with it. And it's you do get totally wrapped up in it. They've been putting these cameras on us, you know. They've been showing the announcers uh, Kevin Harlan had one that kind of blew up on social, so I'm, I'm a little hesitant to be seen uh, in the moment like this. But, yeah, this was some game, and one of the best games I've seen. I've been doing the tournament since 2012. This Kansas State-Michigan uh, State game was right up there with one of the best I've ever seen and called. It was, it was something. Yeah. How about that moment? The Wildcats uh, yeah. star point guard. Marquise Noel, and there's this moment. Let's play it as we talk about it. Why don't you walk through people? What's happening here? Well, okay, so there's two versions of it. Was it a bit? That's the question. They said after the game, Jerome Tang, the head coach, and Marquise Noel said, no, they were actually arguing, and then he saw his teammate backdoor cut, uh, and he threw the lob to him. But I don't know. It, it, It may look like a little bit of a play, playing a little possum. You get the defense to fall asleep, and then boom. So it's artistry. It's a beautiful play, and uh, it was a key play in the game as well. What do you guys think? Whatever think it was, it, was it works. I mean, can we, if we can play it again, because, I, yeah, look, you can see a lot of thing out, things out of your periphery. He doesn't yeah. It doesn't exactly look like he looks over, right? Look over, but, I mean, he's I mean, this barely. is like Broadway's right down the road. Are they acting? Yeah. Are they – is it real? It was, it was a monumental moment, and I think it certainly took Michigan State by surprise. Did it surprise you? Uh, yeah. It did because I'm thinking there may be a timeout here. They're, they're, they're arguing while the point guard is dribbling up the floor. That's yeah. somewhat normal, but uh, to be able to spring it into action that quick and then fire that He line. had an amazing game last yeah. night, Marquis Noel. Um, he had, what, he's a record all-time, 19 assists. Mm-hmm. He's from Harlem. He dropping stats. Right here I in I mean, the producers wrote it yeah, on the sheet. Are, can we, are we I'm really? I'm trying to read the stats we, without my glasses. glasses I know, I'm like, wait a minute. You can just ask. Are you really going to pretend that I know what happened last night? So he set a record for assists in a game. Assist when you set up your teammate for a point. So he scored 20 himself, but he actually assisted 19. Did you just define assist for yes. me? Okay, I do know that. <laughs> okay. And he just scolded me. Put on your glasses. Based on though. our earlier conversation, I thought we were going to have to We need Caitlin. Peel off a couple of layers there. But anyway, so he also had five steals when you take a ball away. Okay, 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 okay. okay. So <laughs> he had the, the steal at the end of the game that basically secured the game. So one team scored more points than the other, and that's how Oh, you get my God, I'm leaving. <laughs> so anyway, that's how it ended. So he ended up making a layup at the end of the game for a five-point win. So if you're a gambler, that might uh, have an effect. But Didn't you ask, was that yesterday day before, what a transport portal is? <laughs> yes. Transport yes. portal? Yes. I was like, we had this... Like, it's kind of self-explanatory, probably. I was like... What are they talking yeah, about? I hope they don't come to me next. Are we up for uh, <laughs> get into it? Any upsets or surprises? Uh, I mean, we're always up for it in the tournament. That's why it's the madness. I think, uh, you know, Princeton's going to be fun to watch tonight. The two number one seeds are in play tonight, uh, Alabama and Houston. So um, 
there's been a lot of turnover. There's been teams, mid-majors teams that, uh, like Florida Atlantic, who uh, won yeah. our second game last night, is now in the Elite Eight and will match up against Kansas can, State. Can you, can you say something nice about Alabama for Caitlin? Of course. Because she's gone today. Well, they're the overall number one seed. <clears throat> they are the team that is expected to, to win, win the I, national championship. So I know what that means. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Uh, appreciate it. Have great. a great weekend, right. and we'll Thank be you. watching and listening yes. most of yeah, all. Poppy's so dialing in the stats. Yeah. It's going. <laughs> hey, we got some uh, developing news that we need to get to now. Moments ago, check it out. This is Trump attorney Evan Corcoran arriving to court in Washington, D.C. He was denied attorney-client privilege in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case and is being compelled to testify, Okay. So we're going to be following that and much, much more. And guess what? It's going to happen starting next on CNN Newsroom right after this break. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for joining us all week. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.